Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is gone. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come on his followers. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the Christians as they're gathered together at Jerusalem whilst they're praying. And uh, remarkable things happen. Uh, The Christians there are enabled to speak in different languages. Many people hear them. Peter stands up and preaches a a cracking sermon. And many, many people, 3,000 we're told in one day, become Christians and are baptised. And then Luke has given us at the end of chapter 2 this little summary statement about how the church was. And it's a fairly idyllic picture of a church which is at peace with itself, which enjoys favour with a wide variety of people in society, and where every day they're seeing more and more people being persuaded that Jesus really has been raised from the dead, that he is Lord and Christ, and joining their number and being baptised into the church. So that really, at the end of chapter 2, marks the end of a section. In chapter 3, we launch onto the next section of Acts, where things start to get a little bit more gritty. We won't see it so much in this chapter, but as we go on into chapter 4 and see the the sort of end of this story, which starts in chapter 3, we'll see that there starts to be trouble for the church. So things are not all rosy. There is going to be serious persecution of the church by the time we get to chapter 4. So that's where we're going, and then we can, we can dive in at chapter 3. So chapter 3, verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now in chapter 4, we learn that this guy is over 40 years old, so he's well practiced in the begging business. This has been his only way of survival probably for the whole of his life. And we should probably imagine that he is sat by a gate outside the outer court of the temple. Um, That's where he gets maximum footfall, and it's also where people who are concerned about their righteousness before God are passing by him. And therefore I guess that's a good place to pick up some charity that's what you're after. So he's outside the gate. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. Now, actually, we know from the rest of Acts, particularly from the end of chapter 2, that the apostles did have access to money. But for whatever reason, they didn't have any money with them at this time. And anyway, they don't want to give this man money. They want to give him something much better. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand... He helped him up. Literally, he raised him up. That's going to be important. And instantly, the man's feet uh, and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. He went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of, of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. I want to focus this evening mainly on Peter's sermon. Now, the, uh, the miracle as recorded in the early verses of this chapter is, is an astonishing one. Uh, purely by speaking, Peter invites a man who has not been able to walk since he was born, who has spent 40 years as an invalid, to stand up. Holds out his hand, and the man takes it. Not only gets up, but immediately starts running like a lunatic through the temple, praising God, as I suppose you would if you were able to walk for the first time in 40 years. But actually, what, as I was reading this passage, what really struck me was Peter's question, the question with which he begins his sermon, if you like, his explanation of what has happened. Fellow Israelites, he says, why does this surprise you? Well, I can think of a number of answers. Uh, one would be, well, it's a bit surprising because this is medically impossible. <coughs> um, another would be, to be honest, we'd just gone in for the normal time of prayer after the evening sacrifice, and then this guy, who we knew couldn't walk, was running down the middle of the temple aisle. That was quite surprising. I can think of an awful lot of reasons why Peter's fellow Israelites would be surprised. But Peter doesn't think they should have been surprised. Peter is surprised that they are surprised. And I want to unpack that a little bit. And I want to start by uh, talking about time travel. Um, and particularly time travel in movies in the 80s. 
Now, um, I, I quite enjoyed time travel in movies in the 80s. Uh, Back to the Future was uh, a particular classic. Um, one, of the, one of the scenes that happened in pretty much every film that <laughs> featured time travel in the 80s, because it was normally somebody accidentally traveling through time, and they didn't really know what was going on. Um, and one of the scenes that always happens was that the, the protagonist, the hero of the film, would turn in distress or shock to one of their locals and say, what year is it? And it was always sort of 1998, because that was as far as they could imagine into the future back, back then. And there were flying cars and stuff. Where's my flying car? Um, I raise that because, um, because it's cool and because... It is quite important to know when you are. Um, it's quite important to know what year it is. On a, on a really mundane level, it's quite important to know what day it is. Um, if I had thought it was Monday, then I would have spent most of the day sitting in the office thinking, why has anybody else come to work? Um, I probably would have worked it out after a little while. But knowing what the time is defines what appropriate behavior is. If I know when it is, I know what I ought to be doing. Or at least I can look at my calendar and find out what I ought to be doing. Or if I haven't filled in my calendar, which is likely, I can ask my wife and she will tell me what I should be doing. But I need to know what the time is. And I think that is what Peter's sermon in this chapter is all about. He is telling his fellow Israelites when it is. Well, how does he unpack that? Well, the first thing is, he takes pains to say, we are not that awesome. We apostles have got nothing special. Why are you looking at us, he says, as if it was us, as if we were particularly powerful or particularly godly, as if we, sort of, out of our own hearts and souls, had summoned up the power to make this man walk? Clearly not. That is not what has happened. But God has glorified his servant Jesus. And so in explanation of what has happened to this man who could not walk but now can, Peter immediately starts to tell the story of Jesus. Jesus has made this happen. The historical Jesus who was crucified but is now being glorified by God. The Jesus who was dead has been raised. Uh, he lays it on pretty thick, to be honest. He calls Jesus God's servant, and that evokes all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament, where um, Jesus stands in a particular relationship with God as somebody who works by God's power. He calls uh, Jesus the holy and righteous one. He wants to get this clear. Jesus had done nothing wrong in front of God or men. He was holy and righteous. He calls him the author of life. That's a fantastic title, isn't it? He wrote life. And this Jesus was disowned by the crowd in Jerusalem handed over to Pilate, crucified and killed. But God raised him to life. 
You killed the author of life, says Peter. But God raised him from the dead. And as far as Peter is concerned in this sermon, that is epoch making. If God raised Jesus from the dead, that means we are in a whole new age. A whole new time has started. He goes on to explain that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is how God fulfilled, verse 18, what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And then down to verse 22. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Verse 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. All the way through the Old Testament, you have hope. God is going to come. He is going to decisively intervene in the world and specifically in the history of the nation of Israel. He's going to make things right. He's going to purify the nation. He's going to change the course of this broken world and set it right. Uh, I read, read Bible stories with my son uh, every evening, which is great. I, I, I'll be honest, I don't know how much of it um, sinks into his head. He's two. Um, but his summary of most of, of it is this. Our world is broken. He looks at you very seriously. Jesus is fixing our world. That'll do. If that's all he gets, I'm okay with it. Peter is saying... That is now no longer a distant hope in the future. In raising Jesus from the dead, God has intervened in our world. God has decisively changed the course of events. This is a new age. This is the time the prophets looked forward to. This is the time when God will save his people. And actually not only his people... Verse 25, you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He's talking here to Jewish people. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So Peter is saying, that is Jesus who is going to bless all peoples. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to the Jews, To bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, he doesn't actually go on to say it, but by implication, if he's saying he sent sent him first to you, he is also sent to others outside of Israel, to the whole world. This is a time for blessing. This is a new age. Something has changed. And it's striking and encouraging that something has changed, first of all, even for those people who delivered Jesus up to death. Their situation has changed. God has intervened to save them, the ones who killed the author of life. 
God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the age of raising up. And so says Peter, if God has reached down into the grave and raised Jesus from the dead, why should it surprise you if in Jesus' name I am able to reach down a few feet and raise a man out of his invalidity, out of his disability, and into a wholeness of life? Why are you surprised at this? Do you not know when it is? Are you not aware that in the resurrection of Jesus everything has changed? This is a new age. Now, we need to be clear on this. This is not the final age. Verse 21. Heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the prophets. So not everything will be restored in this age. That waits for Jesus to come back and return again from heaven when he will restore all things. And that, I take it, is why we do not see this sort of thing every day. We don't see everybody who is suffering released from suffering. Everybody who is struggling set free. Even this guy, I'm guessing, went on to have further troubles and difficulties in his life. And then he died. This isn't the age of the restoration of all things. But it is the age after God has made that restoration a certainty by raising Jesus from the dead. And throughout this age, we should expect to see signs of that. Whether it is a sign like this, a man who could not walk walking. Or a sign like this. A person who knew nothing about God turning to him and being saved because they fall in love with him through the Lord Jesus. That is what is going on. That is the time that we are living in. And that is why Peter can say, why does this surprise you? If it surprises you, you just don't know when it is. I would be surprised if I saw this sort of thing, let's be honest, shocked even. At some level that must mean that I do not know what time it is, or that I do not really believe it or grasp its implications. If God raised Jesus from the dead... If he is pouring out times of refreshing on those who turn to him, what should still surprise me? Why should I still be astonished? But I am. I would be astonished by this. I'll tell you a secret. I'm even quite astonished when I see anybody become a Christian. Somebody I did a Christianity Explored course with in Cambridge once became a Christian and I Honestly, almost wanted to ask, are you sure? It doesn't seem very likely. Why should that surprise me? What is more difficult? Turning this person from 
ignorance of God to faith in him or raising Jesus bodily from the dead and installing him on the throne of the universe. God has done one of those things. Why could he not do the other? As a church, I wonder how much we go out into the world believing that this is the age that we live in. Massively, massively important that we not go out into the world believing that we have any power to do anything very much at all. But it's fatal if we swing so far the other way that we forget that Jesus Christ has power to do everything. Everything. It's fantastic, the, uh, the encounter in this chapter. The way it's described... Luke is a, is a great storyteller, and the way he builds this up. The man saw Peter and John about to enter and asked them for money, as he would do of probably hundreds of people that day. But then it's like we freeze. Peter looks straight at him, as did John. Tension. Peter said, look at us. The man looks up. Tension. The man gave him his full attention, expecting to get something. He expected to get something. He didn't expect to get this. And it's at that point that you get the invitation to faith. Now, there are two amazing displays of faith here. One is Peter's. He says, get up and walk, and reaches down to this man. That is great faith. Peter believes that Jesus is on the throne of the universe. And for whatever reason, he knows that Jesus wants to heal this man here and now. Now, I know that healing is not given out to everybody who could really use it. But however it is that he knows, Peter knows that this time, Jesus wants to heal this particular man. And he reaches down. But another incredible act of faith after 40 years of not walking is to reach up and take that hand and stand up why would you even try and so Peter can go on to say that it is by faith in the name of Jesus it is Jesus name the faith that comes through him that has healed him I think my question for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who in our heads at least would say, yes, we believe that this is the time that we live in, the time when Jesus is on the throne. My question would be, what have we attempted in the name of Jesus? What have we tried to do? And how much of our failing to try to do stuff has been because in the back of our minds there is this nagging suspicion that maybe Jesus is not on the throne. Maybe we're going to look stupid if we try something and nothing happens. Maybe worse than that, if I don't ask Jesus to do anything, then he'll never disappoint me. But what if I tried something in his name 
is there a slight fear in my mind that maybe he isn't there? And what happens to my life then? That's why it really matters. In the middle of this little sermon, Peter throws in this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. This happened in public. We saw it. This is not something that we have made up. It is true and real. As we cling to that, as we get into the New Testament's testimony to Jesus and his resurrection, what could we not attempt to do in his name? It's possible that some of you don't know Jesus, are not convinced that he reigns over the universe. I can't offer you today any proof of this sort. What I can tell you is there are witnesses who saw him raised and they've written about it and you can read it. I can tell you something else. Faith in his name can turn your life around in as dramatic a way as it did for this man in this story. It's entirely possible that you don't have his disabilities. But let me tell you something else that you don't have if you don't know Jesus. You don't have peace with God. You don't have the knowledge that you're a child of the God who made the universe, who loves you. And those things can turn your life around. Because they are true if you will trust in Jesus.